and uh, created the legitimacy uh, uh, appearance, but not only this, also uh, much more than this. They want to, and this is an ongoing trend to dehumanize and to demonize uh, the bloodthirsty Israeli uh, leadership, whether it is, it doesn't matter which government, it can be left, right, uh, it's equal for them uh, from their point of view. Even Rabin, after assigning the Oslo Code, was, uh, was presented as a bloodthirsty uh, uh, by Hamas, which rejected uh, the, um, the Oslo Code. Some examples of uh, uh, Sharon and uh, George Bush demonizing uh, uh, of uh, leaders. And this is taken most of them by, uh, by uh, from Hamas uh, uh, websites, uh, which are very much intended uh, to convey a very well specific uh, message. Now, these guys which uh, Professor Wilson have uh, presented, more of them, they have, uh, they set the ideological, religious inspiration and uh, rationality. Basically, we are facing today within this delegitimization of these action items on the ground. The ideological global uh, struggle, the jihad against the crusaders and the Jews, meaning the West, this is a, a, again very much an item which is embedded in Arabic within their day-to-day -day preaching uh, ideas and so uh, on. The role of Muslim, the role of Muslim uh, scholars in addressing these issues facing the Islamic nation, and this is again the Islamic nation or the Ummah concept, which is opposing secularism, nationalism, which is much more vibrant, much more uh, 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 prevalent in uh, the last, I would say, three or four uh, years. And of course, in the background, saving Jerusalem, breaking the siege in Gaza, uh, on Gaza, all those elements which actually this is the meaning of this new uh, jihad, and this new confrontation with Israel, which is not on the piece of land only, but we are speaking about a religious uh, debate, a religious uh, hatred and uh, confrontation. And they say, Palestine is equivalent for us, like the Muslim minorities which are struggling in Kashmir, in Iraq, in Somalia, in Afghanistan, what we call the jihadi zone. This is the Al-Qaeda story, we don't have now time, but exactly the same rationale, the same ideology, which has to sustain and assist with jihad, Muslim minorities around the world within the framework of the solidarity of the Ummah, the Muslim nation. Now, the broader context of the flotilla has to be taken from somewhere else. First of all, this uh, forum of the global campaign against aggression was established uh, in 2003 regarding the invasion of the U.S. and the coalition forces to Iraq. And there they sanctioned that jihad is lawful and the, uh, the U.S. forces have to be confronted and therefore 
the legitimacy of starting the Al-Qaeda adventure in Iraq was based on one of the elements, and this was this convention, this conference, which, by no mistake, also came, uh, was uh, in uh, uh, Saudi Arabia, which is very much influencing the Salafi jihadi ideology. This is in the background in 2003. The same or very similar conference in Istanbul in 2009. And this is what the Istanbul Declaration, a group of prominent scholars, Islamic radical Islamic scholars, mainly leaders of the Muslim Brotherhood, but not only from worldwide, have gathered under the auspice of the Turkish, allowing them to convey in uh, Istanbul, and this was, mind you, after Castle in 2008, and they declared that they have to confront Israel and they have declared jihad. And by the way, notice they say, including at sea. Meaning they are going to break in 2009, a year before uh, the Nadal The idea of breaking the siege through the sea existed as action item, as an ideological and sanctioning permission to carry on. The document declared, of course, victory for Hamas after the Castlet operation, and that jihad in Gaza is part of the global jihad. I have the original. This is a quote. And, of course, the permission to support and contain the struggle <coughs> of jihad against Israel and so on and so forth. This is in the background because uh, before the Flotilla set uh, sail. After the convention, a, a very uh, well-known Saudi cleric was gracious enough to give an interview to the BBC saying that uh, they opened or they declared a new jihadi front in Palestine. As if it was not before, but they have reinforced their commitment for this jihad uh, front in uh, Palestine based on the decisions uh, of this conference in Istanbul in 2009. The umbrella was set, the staging was set. The Union of Good, headed by Cardawi, which Professor Wilson had uh, shown this clip before, they have got the realization that the Istanbul Convention now is, uh, was entrusted in, by two hands of the Union of Good, a pan-Islamic international spread uh, of organizations, and we'll speak about it. By the way, outlawed or designated by the US and by Israel, this Union of Good, for connection to terrorism and uh, Hamas. And the IIH, the Turkish organization, was set as a front to carry on the uh, mission to buy or to purchase the ships, to make all the operations and set sail from Turkey uh, via uh, uh, Gaza. It is well known that uh, the connections between the IIH and Hamas are at least from 
2008 or even a little bit before, I discovered the CIA documents stating that the IIH was also active in Bosnia and Herzegovina uh, during the uh, Bosnian War in 1996, uh, connected to the Mujahideen in uh, uh, Bosnia and Herzegovina. The Americans got mad uh, from this information, which was stuck somewhere in one of the reports. So everything is linked if you want to listen carefully and to link it. Now, Sheikh Kardawi, I'm not saying that he is the, the head organizer, but he is the most influential guy. That on one hand, is linked to the anti-aggression campaign and is a member or a very powerful member in this forum. is one of the leading figures of the Union of Good and is involved also in the European campaign to end the siege in Gaza. As we say in Yiddish, everything is in the Mishpuche. I know you and you know me and we are here and he is there and they are all interlinked, communicating, while setting forth a net of organizations which are the Islamic charitable organizations, which since 2001 started to funnel money to Hamas in the West Bank and Gaza. Those organizations, some of them were shut down and banned, like the Holland Foundation in the US, the Kind Hearts in the US. Others are under suspicion. Others were shut down, like El Aqsa uh, institutions in Germany, in Holland, they were shut down by the local authorities. But this is what is important, the international connection between those charities in supporting Hamas. This is the very same infrastructure which was involved in dispatching the Fortuna. Uh, the IHH, as you see, is part of this umbrella organization of the, uh, of the Union of Good. They have the men, they have the capability, they have the connection, and they have the stability, and of course, the green light of the Turkish uh, uh, government. But more involved now on the agenda with the new uh, initiatives of Flotillas since yesterday and so on, we have additional groups like the ABSPP, the Italian charitable organization, which is an Islamic charitable organization linked to Hamas, now initiating a new flotilla. The ASP in Switzerland, the same. Everything is not a mistake. And everything is under the ideology of jihad, under the ideology of very much, not so much helping the Palestinians because they can move their goods through the Ashdod port, but to make a point and to make a point in a very, very specific attitude. Only lately, Sheikh Kadawi, the same very one that we've discussed uh, about him, which is very welcome in the UK, was, in the, in the US is banned. He said that the last punishment uh, was carried out by Hitler to the Jewish people. Now, this was aired on Al Jazeera, thanks to memory, Menachem, uh, Professor Wilson. Uh, and the other one is uh, that the Jews 
will throw the bomb at me, I will kill them, I'm ready to be a martyr. So this is the nature of the, uh, of the ideology, which is very much funneling the emotions and the action items uh, which was behind the violent flotilla. The violent flotilla was a combination of a saturated anti-Jewish, anti anti-Zionist, and anti-Israeli sentiments. Shouting, Haiba Haiba Yahud, Jesh Muhammad Salfa Yahud. We know this slogan, this is a battle cry, says the days of the uh, uh, 7th century, it is written, but this was the atmosphere uh, of the confrontational atmosphere vis-a-vis -vis the Navy uh, SEALs. Uh, One of the participants, the Yemeni uh, guy, the Yemeni MP, he was uh, shown uh, brushing, brandishing uh, uh, the, the dagger, and he participated and was a signatory on the Istanbul conf uh, conference decision making. So he participated in Istanbul and he participated in the flotilla itself as a personal commitment. Not by chance. This uh, Yemeni guy is a, uh, is a member of the Islah party in Yemen, which is designated by the US, headed by Sheikh Zindani. And indirectly, the Abu Mutala, the Detroit failed attack, if you remember, last uh, December, Christmas, in Detroit, trying to uh, gun down the, uh, uh, the plane. Uh, the Abu Mutala guy, he was dispatched by the Islam and by Zindan. So the links that, that do uh, does uh, appear here. Now, the dagger is very much in the Islamic uh, uh, history and uh, well known in Hamas uh, posters. And in uh, uh, this is a Hamas suicide bomber that uh, detonated in 94 in uh, Afula, the Israeli city of Afula, one of the first suicide bombers. So this was his last win uh, with, with the knife. And also demonstration in the UK. I'm sure that Mike uh, Wine will explain more about what is happening in the UK. After his uh, arrest uh, uh, and release from arrest, this Yemeni guy, the MP, Basically what he said, I was ready to be a martyr. I came for a mission, I came for a martyrdom, and I was willing to die, I wrote the will. This was the environment. Sheikh Tabatabi from Kuwait also participated in the Istanbul Declaration in one of the signatories, and he participated on the flotilla. In the wake of the flotilla, a new declaration by Saudi Muslim clerics, basically from Saudi Arabia and worldwide, declared on the 3rd of June that the massacre of Liberty Flotilla occurred and there is a need to engage in a new jihad against Israel. The more anti-Semitic uh, per se manifestations, while uh, calling uh, uh, the Navy, the Israeli Navy, calling the flotilla, there was an answer: go back to Auschwitz. 
It doesn't matter if it was from the Mavi Marmara or it was, but it was in connection and in context to this event. So go back to Auschwitz. Uh, not go, go to hell, you Israelis, or the F word, or whatever. Go back to Auschwitz. So Auschwitz exists on the board of the Mavi Marmara on the 30th or 31st of May, 2010. And I'm 56 years old. And they told, told us, go back to Auschwitz. Now, I want to confess, I participated in numerous operations very much similar uh, to the Navi Marmara when I was in the Navy Seals. Ever, never, I heard such cursing, such uh, 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 an approach, which was a totally different scale. And that's why the events happened how they happened. I'm not going to analyze the operational aspects of it, but uh, because this is not now my uh, topic, but the ideas of, of anti-Judaism, anti-Zionism, anti-Israeli was very powerful. Uh, also on websites, on uh, uh, jihadi uh, websites, uh, Islamic uh, websites, about the only solution, the final solution. For us to hear the final solution is very, very problematic. I think for everyone, but it's... This was posted. It's not from the Holocaust. After analyzing this, it's not from the Holocaust. But the insinuendo of the final solution, it was on the same posting, on the same page. And then bodies. And then the solution we are coming. Jahafir, the Tawheed, the legions are coming of radical Islam, and this is the solution. This was after the events on the Mavi Marmara. The media, uh, the Arab media, also responded to the flotilla, to the Gaza events, the Gaza flotilla events. And you see the pictures, uh, how the Israeli soldiers are being uh, depicted and painted. And uh, uh, needless to add, I think it's all very uh, uh, clear. The very traditional, <coughs> the octopus legs, which is written in Arabic, Dawat al-Irhab, state of uh, terror. The swastika on the, uh, on the Israeli flag or the, and the skulls on the Maganda Bridge. The Jewish stopping the uh, flow of uh, lifeline to the Gazians' life and death. <coughs> and again, the Union of Good website depicting the Freedom Flotilla and the Judo-Nazi uh, octopus uh, against, against them. Your work is, uh, is truly impressive. Uh, my, uh, I'd like to make two points at the outset. The first is that the, uh, the horrific images and uh, video clips that we've had to endure the last hour or so uh, have uh, 
not been produced by innovators. These people are not innovators. Uh, and uh, you won't be surprised that as a historian I, I, I make that point. The second point I want to make is about what I'll call the third world conundrum. I was at a conference in Tel Aviv in May at which a, um, uh, about Arab responses to fascism and Nazism, in which a historian of the Middle East from a research university in the United States, in response to my comments, uh, said, well, there's anti-Semitism, and then anti-Semitism is not always anti-Semitism. And the meaning of it, which he didn't really want to say completely, frankly, was that if Heinrich Himmler says X, that's anti-Semitism. But if Karadari or if Husseini um, or Saeed Kutub says X, then it's anti-colonialism and it's anti-imperialism. This gets to the issue uh, that uh, um, Elie Wiesel raised when he mentioned silence. I confess to a little bit of irritation with Elie Wiesel uh, about that uh, because uh, a number of us uh, have made ourselves quite unpopular in recent years, being anything but silent after Ahmadinejad threatened to wipe out Israel. And I think it's important to recognize that there are intellectuals and scholars in this country and in Europe, and especially young people in Germany and Austria, above all, but not only, who have spoken out and tried to be as unsilent as they possibly could be. Uh, Yale is to be congratulated uh, for welcoming Charles, uh, welcoming this conference. I wish the Ivy League would speak a little more loudly. I don't hear enough voices from the Ivy League. Um, uh, that would be welcome to speak about anti-Semitism when it comes from an Arab, an Iranian, or an Islamic context. Our basic slogan should be no double standards when it comes to any form of racism or anti-Semitism. This morning I'm going to do what authors should probably never do. I'm going to assume that this audience, or rather a certain part of the audience, has read my recent book, Nazi Propaganda for the Arab World, or is familiar with its argument from reading some of the reviews. So I'm going to briefly summarize its core arguments and evidence before turning to additional evidence regarding the mid-20th century emergence of the tradition that we call Islamism. My good and extremely brave, you can't imagine how brave he has been, uh, Basim Tibi is here today. My, my very good friend Basim Tibi is writing an important book on Islam and Islamism and the differences between them. And a lively debate is going to take place in years to come about what is Islam and what is Islamism. Um, but uh, Islamism stands at the center of my, my brief remarks this morning. It stands at the center of what the Israeli historian Robert Wistrich has called the shift in the center of gravity and the locus of global anti-Semitism from Europe uh, to the Arab, Iranian, and Islamic context since the middle of the 20th century. After summarizing the arguments in my recent book, I want to discuss a recently discovered speech by Haj Amin al-Husseini, which he delivered in Baladan, Syria in 1937. And I'll contrast Husseini's success in post, immediate post-1945 Palestinian nationalist and Arab politics with the success of one of his former associates in wartime Berlin, Kurt Georg Kiesinger, uh, who went on to become the Chancellor of West Germany in 1966. 
The contrast between Hussein and Kissinger illuminates the shift of gravity I've just mentioned. I then want to turn very briefly to a fascinating memo written by the, um, the late Princeton political scientist Manfred Halpern. Halpern is the author of The Politics of Social Change in the Middle East, which was published in 1962. And he taught Middle East politics at Princeton from 1959 to 1994. From 1948 to 1958, Manfred Halpern, who was born in Weimar, Germany, uh, fled to this country, worked in the counterintelligence corps of the United States Army during World War II, and then, after the war, worked on the Near East desk as one of its founders in the United States State Department. In 1952, Manfred Halpern wrote a memo that I found two weeks ago in the United States National Archives. It was one of the most extensive, articulate, and largely ignored warnings of a current of ideas in 1952 that Manfred Halpern called Neo-Islamic Totalitarianism. He was discussing the Muslim Brotherhood and related Islamist currents. It would be very interesting to find out what happened to that memo and to Halpern's arguments in the State Department in the 1950s and 60s. The argument of Nazi propaganda for the Arab world is the following. During World War II, and especially between 1941 and 1945, a faithful political and ideological collaboration took place in Nazi Berlin. The participants included an entourage of Arab nationalists and Islamists, led by the Grand Mufti of Jerusalem, Pasha bin al-Husseini, as well as Rashid al-Gilani, the former head of a pro-Axis government in Iraq, which the British government overthrew in an invasion of May and June 1941. The Arab and Islamist exiles arrived in Berlin in November 1941, where they met Hitler and Foreign Minister Joachim von Ribbentrop. As is well known, on November 28th of 1941, Hitler promised Husseini that in the event of Axis victory on the southern uh, parts of the Eastern Front in Europe, in Stalingrad, as well as in North Africa, Hitler would extend the final solution to the Jews residing in the Middle East. The fate of those Jews did not depend on the outcome of the battles between Nazi Germany and the Soviet Union on the Eastern Front, especially the Battle of Stalingrad, as well as the outcome of battles in North Africa, especially those in Al Alamein and later in Tunisia. Hussein, who had expressed his enthusiasm for the Nazi regime since 1933, mostly via private communications with German officials, as well as Kilani, eagerly offered to assist the Nazis in the best way they could, namely by placing themselves, uh, their, uh, their colloquial Arabic, and, their, and the entourage of native Arab speakers who were, were familiar with both Islam and local Arab politics at the disposal of the Nazi regime's Arab, Arabic language print, and especially shortwave radio propaganda aimed at the region. The center of this collaboration lay in the divisions of the German Foreign Office responsible for foreign language broadcasting, uh, and I won't mention the, rather, the names of rather obscure diplomats uh, uh, in the book, I go into that. Um, the, the key point here is that the, uh, the Nazis and the pro-Nazi Arab collaborators produced a cultural fusion, a synthesis that brought together the anti-Western, anti-democratic, and vehemently anti-Semitic currents of National Socialism and radical Arab nationalism and Islamism, and these were fused with, the, with an equally radical Islamist reading of the traditions of Islam. British and American diplomats in the Middle East were aware of the resulting broadcasts from Radio Berlin and the Voice of Free Arabism. One diplomat in particular, the American ambassador of Egypt, Alexander Kirk, played a decisive role in creating a remarkable documentary record 
of the results of this collaboration. Between the spring of 1942 and the end of the war, the Americans in Cairo produced English language verbatim transcripts of Axis broadcasts in Arabic, and they sent them every week to the office of the Secretary of State, first Cordell Hall and then Edward Statinius. Um, the resulting Statinius, maybe the graduate. The, res the resulting several thousand pages were declassified in 1977. This remarkable and unique record of a founding moment of Islamism remained either unread or unused by scholars of the Middle East and of World War II until I came across them in June of 2007. I'm very lucky. My office is a mile from the National Archives. <laughs> the evidence in Nazi propaganda for the Arab world represents a significant advance in our knowledge of a vital chapter in the longer history of Islam, Islamism. Its key points are as follows. Throughout the war, the Nazi regime's broadcast rested on a highly selective reading of the Quran and the traditions of Islam. The Nazis understood that uh, broadcasting passages of Mein Kampf or verbal speeches would not be effective. Nazi propaganda presented the, the Third Reich as a friend of Islam as it chose to interpret that religion. This elective affinity rested on the uh, shared antipathies I mentioned above, the liberal democracy, Western individualism, the allies in World War II, Britain, the Soviet Union, and after December 41, the United States as well, and to Zionism and the Jews. Nazi propaganda made no distinction between anti-Zionism and anti-Semitism, and both participants, the Germans and the Arab exiles in Berlin, opposed Zionism because they also hated the Jews as Jews and saw any Jewish state in Palestine as incompatible with the demands of Islam as they understood them. The secular appeals to oppose the Allies in the war and oppose Zionism were inseparable from religious argument, like the ones we've heard this morning, about the supposedly inherently anti-Jewish character of Islam. There's a selective reading of the Quran and the Hadith that was very important for the propaganda. Uh, German officials in the foreign ministry concluded that this kind of appeal connected to Islamist themes more effectively than were Hitler's arguments in Mein Kampf. Second, Nazi propaganda uh, in German informed German listeners that the Nazi regime was in the process of annihilating and exterminating Europe's Jews to take revenge on a people that supposedly had launched a war of extermination against the Germans. I made that point in my book, The Jewish Enemy. As Nazi Germany's Arabic language broadcasts were being to areas where the German armies had not yet seized control of areas where the Jews were living, their message, voiced by Husseini and other unnamed announcers, was for listeners to take matters into their own hands and kill the Jews themselves. Nazi broadcasts accused the Jews of the sins of having started World War II in order to create a Jewish state not only in Palestine, but from the Nile to the Euphrates, of seeking to wipe out the Arabs and to destroy the religion of Islam. The broadcast displayed the adaptation of anti-Semitic conspiracy theories of the Protocols of the Elders of Zion to the political and religious themes of Arab and, of an Arab and Islamic context. In spreading such conspiracy theories, and in making explicit appeals for listeners to engage in mass murder, the broadcasts themselves were actions which in the Nuremberg successor trials of German officials working on German language propaganda had been defined as war crimes and crimes against humanity. What you saw today, by the way, according to the United Nations Genocide Convention of 1948, all of that was a war crime. The, the, the people who have done that should be, I think if Erwin Cutler is here, or Erwin has made the point below, these people should be indicted for war crimes and crimes against humanity. 
you, you have seen crimes against humanity this morning. That's what that stuff is. According to the United Nations, it is according to the Article 3 of the Incitement Clause of the United Nations Genocide Convention. So the law schools at Yale and Harvard have work to do. Um, uh, and Ahmadinejad, too, with his threats, has committed war crimes and crimes against humanity based on Article 3 of the Genocide Convention. That is, if, if the Genocide Convention does mean something. Um, in addition uh, to the broadcasts themselves, the files of the German Foreign Office, of the British Embassy in wartime Cairo, of American embassies and consulates in the Middle East, of the United States Office of Strategic Services and American Military Intelligence, all came to roughly the following conclusion regarding the impact question of Nazi Germany's Arabic propaganda. It was, all of them concluded, enthusiastically welcomed by a distinct group of political and intellectual figures in the Muslim Brotherhood, some younger army officers in Egypt and Iraq, some faculty and students at Al-Azhar University in Cairo, and probably in other universities and affiliates of the Muslim Brotherhood elsewhere in the region. They did not make generalizations about all Muslims or all Arabs. You won't find that in the files of, uh, of the American, British, or even in the, the German files. There were Arab political figures who supported the Allies, the, um, uh, and voiced their opposition to fascism and anti-Semitism and Nazism. But the Americans and the British concluded that the outcome of the war in Europe, and especially in North Africa, would exert a powerful influence on Arab and Muslim opinion. Had the Germans won the Battle of Al-Alamein in 1942, the Americans and British believed it was likely that they would find, the Germans would find collaborators in the above-mentioned circles. Again, the assessment by the Orientalist you know, uh, Western allies was nuanced, balanced, subtle, uh, full of distinctions, and did not make generalizations about all Arabs or all Muslims. Fourth, the evidence regarding the impact and reception of the propaganda includes its after effects in the years after the war. In the summer of 1945, the OSS uh, experts for the region concluded there was no support in the Middle East to indict Husseini and other Arab Islamist collaborators for war crimes or crimes against humanity. The cause of this lack of enthusiasm, uh, the OSS analysts concluded, lay in the view, widespread in the region, that collaboration, their collaboration, was due to opposition to British presence in the region and to a widespread opposition to Zionism, seen as a form of colonialism. Not all opposition to Zionism was driven by hatred of the Jews, but the broad anti-Zionist mood in the Middle East meant that anti-Semites, such as Husseini, were not precluded from assuming positions of leadership in the post-war years. Indeed, upon Hussein's return to Cairo in 1946, Hassan al-Banna, the leader of the Muslim Brotherhood, extolled the Mufti. Hitler and Mussolini said al-Banna were gone, but the Mufti would continue the struggle. That is, al-Banna and the Muslim Brotherhood saw the fight against the effort to establish a Jewish state in Palestine after 1945 as part of the same struggle that Husseini had waged in wartime Berlin. Another example of how the gentlemen that we heard this morning were not innovators comes from a text that many of you, I'm sure, have read. It, is, it was written in either 1950 or 51 by the uh, Islamist ideologue Qutb, the leading ideologist of the Brotherhood, called Our Struggle with the Jews. The essay integrates the standard conspiracy theories of European anti-Semitism with an anti-Semitic reading of classic Islamic texts and asserts that Allah sent Hitler to earth to punish the Jews. Again, um, an early echo. 
We don't know if Kuta bred a leaflet produced by Heinrich Himmler's Reichsinnerheitshauptamt, the SS, in 1944, that suggested exactly the same thing. But our struggle with the Jews offers further powerful evidence that the cultural fusion of wartime Berlin found a powerful echo in Islamist circles after the war. Nazi propaganda for the Arab world has been well received by scholars of both Nazi Germany and by some scholars of the Middle East who view it as a turning point that greatly expands our previously inadequate knowledge of Nazi Arabic propaganda. The scholarly reply from the mainstream of scholars of the Middle East is yet to come, but there are indications that the presentation of this evidence does not meet with unanimous delay. Indeed, Tarif Khalidi, without having read the book, Tarif Khalidi, who used to direct the Department of Islam Studies at Oxford and now teaches at the American University in Beirut. Khalidi, without having read the book, wrote to the editors of the Times Literary Supplement last month to denounce it as a piece of Israeli propaganda. My reply to Khalidi, Khalidi is in the August 13th issue of the Times Literary Supplement. My informal responses, um, more informal responses, suggest that there will be those who insist that this propaganda had no impact that Hajjamin al-Husseini was a marginal figure in the late 40s, and that the real reason anti-Semitism has spread to the Middle East is because the State of Israel was founded in 1948. Lurking in these arguments is the idea, rarely stated publicly, that anti-Semitism, when coming from Arabs, Islamists, or Iranians, is understandable. That is an excusable response to the sins of Zionism, and thus is not worthy of the same kind of moral criticism or passion that is applied to Jew hatred in the European context. What we could call the excuse of third worldism interprets Arab collaboration with the Nazi regime as an understandable aspect of a basically legitimate opposition to British colonialism, uh, to Zionism, to Orientalism, uh, one in which Arab and Islamic collaborators somehow found themselves drawn into passively the world of Nazism. In fact, the evidence in my book and those of other recent works uh, um, uh, in particular, the German, young German scholars, uh, Martin Cooper, Klaus Malmann, uh, uh, Klaus Gensicke, uh, uh, Matthias Kunzel have done important work, um, is more than sufficient to confirm the active enthusiasm with which Hussein and his colleagues tried to help Nazi Germany win the Second World War and to fan the flame of hatred of the Jews. Since the publication of my book, further evidence regarding impact, reception, and after effects has emerged. My friend, uh, the German political scientist and uh, contemporary historian Matthias Kunzel made a discovery. He found that Hajim bin al-Hussein had produced one of Islamism's founding texts well before he came to Berlin in 1941. While avoided arrest by British authorities, Husseini organized an all-Arab conference of 400 delegates held on September 8th and 9th, 1937 in Baladan, Syria. In Husseini's absence, one of his texts was read to those in, in attendance. The following year, a text by Husseini entitled Islam and the Jews was published in German by Joker and Dunhaupt of Berlin in a work entitled Islam, Jewry, and Bolshevism, edited by one Mohammed Sabri. Sabri's work appeared in a series on the idea and form of national socialism. The German text of Husseini's piece had the subtitle The Grand Mufti's Appeal to the Islamic World in 1937. It is almost certainly the same text delivered to the delegates in Baludan in September of 37. Islam and the Jews is a very important text. It offers a remarkably elaborated reading of the Quran that plays some of the ridiculous and horrific stories that we saw this morning um, uh, on the agenda. 
It plays two hatred into a millennial time span and applied it to modern times. His publication in the German edition in 1938 in Berlin meant that Husseini's distinctively Islamist Jew hatred could be known by those in the German government and academic circles who followed developments in the Arab world. Kunzel reports that presumably an Arabic edition was widely distributed in the Middle East, thus constituting an early step in the diffusion of Jew hatred into the, with Islamic textual reference. Here are some key passages. Quote, the battle between Jews and Islam began when Muhammad fled from Mecca to Medina. Therefore, they were seized by deep hatred against Islam. This hatred intensified the stronger and more powerful, the intensified the stronger and more powerful Islam became. In those days, the Jewish methods were exactly the same as they are today. Then Islam slander was their weapon. They said Muhammad was a swindler. They tried to undermine his honor. They began to pose senseless and unanswerable questions to Muhammad. And then they tried to annihilate Muhammad. And the story of the attempt to poison Muhammad is in Husseini's speech as well. Just as the Jews were able to betray Muhammad, so they will betray Muslims today. The verses of the Quran and the Hadiths assert that the Jews were Islam's most bitter enemy and moreover tried to destroy them. Now, uh, what goes on in a text like the, uh, the Baladon speech is what the British literary critic Raymond Williams long ago called the labor of selective tradition. And it goes on with all major cultural and religious traditions that intellectuals and political figures interpret and selectively read them in particular ways. And this is, this is one of Husseini's contributions uh, to uh, the, the uh, emergence of, of, uh, of, of Islamism. Uh, I want to, uh, I'm going to skip over a number of things uh, uh, and I won't, because I, I think this, uh, this note about Manfred Halpern is, is particularly uh, uh, interesting. Um, in, in order for historical scholarship on a shift of gravity uh, from Europe to the Middle East to advance, it's essential that there be more scholars who read Arabic, Farsi, or Hebrew and build on the work of Basim Tibi or Meyer Lipbeck or Esther Webman and many others. Um, and they will have an uphill fight because the discipline of Middle East studies in this country is not particularly uh, sympathetic to this kind of work. Uh, it's equally essential that the archives of Arab governments, relevant organizations, and centers of intellect intellectual life, including universities, be open and accessible. That must be a very important priority outside of this initiative to make a public issue of opening those archives. Um, uh, and hopefully, our, uh, our Arab. Uh, uh, and Iranian colleagues, uh, uh, well, of course, in Iran, they, they would take their life in the hands if they would do that, uh, uh, could, um, we could give, give them support. To Halpern, in February, and I'll conclude with this. In February of 52, he was working on the Middle East desk in the State Department, and he wrote a long report entitled 80 pages, Islam as a Barrier to Communism in the Arab World. And uh, my, I have more work to do, but my guess is that Halpern was responding to uh, suggestions that the United States used the religion of Islam as a barrier against communism uh, in the Cold War. Uh, he didn't think that was a good idea. Um, he didn't think it was a good idea because he thought that uh, Islamism uh, had uh, uh, authoritarian and even totalitarian components that could be made com uh, compatible with the communism. Um, here is what he had to say about the ideas of the Muslim Brotherhood in 1952. Unable, despite the grandiose vision of its program to solve the basic issues of westernized modern life, technical and economic progress, peaceful relations among rival sovereignties, and the reconciliation of freedom with security, 
Neo-Islamic totalitarianism is forced by the logic of its own position and dynamics to pursue its goals through nihilistic terror, kind, and passion. Like fascism, its movement represents the institutionalization of constant struggle and extreme tension." Unquote. Halpern did not discuss the issue of anti-Semitism, but in 1952, at least one analyst in the United States Department of State had grasped the key elements of the cultural fusion that had taken place in wartime Berlin and in the Middle East. Before and since 9-11, too many of the experts on the modern Middle East have not wanted to pursue Halpern's insights. Hopefully, the burst of recent scholarship on Nazism, Islamism, and anti-Semitism will encourage a younger generation of scholars willing and able to do just that. Thanks to all for an amazing array uh, of ideas and perceptions. We've come to the midday break, and perhaps the discussions will go on over lunch. We're back on schedule this afternoon. Uh, so just two brief announcements. First of all, I'd like to thank Professor Charlie Hill to, to uh, uh, chair this session. He's running a very important international security studies program here at Yale. He's also one of the founding members of our governance committee at, at ESO. Thank you very much. The most important uh, information I'll give you now is that lunch is going to be served just around the corner. If you exit the building to your left, you turn left and make an immediate left and sort of behind the building and people will guide you there. We have about an hour for lunch and then come back. And for those, and this is relevant all the through 